Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Race Refactoring podcast. This is Andrzej Krzywda speaking, and today the topic is mutation testing. Uh, at ArcNC, we recently experimented in a real project with the tool called Mutant, which is a really good tool for mutation testing in the Ruby world. So I thought, why don't we invite Marcus for the podcast and let him um, tell us more about Mutant, about some more advanced techniques we can use it. So Marcus, hello, why don't you introduce yourself? Yeah, hello. So uh, I'm a first-time podcaster. My name is Marcus Sherp, and um, I'm the author of the Mutant Mutation Testing Tool. Um, yeah, we are here to help people to understand the benefits of mutation testing and how to implement it on a wider scale on real-world projects, which is obviously not really easy to get from the current release Mutant documentation. Yeah, however, when we started using Mutant, it was it was all fine with a little bit of your help. Uh, so we were able to set up and start things going. But very quickly, we realized that there is something much deeper in Mutant. And then we had our conversation and you said things like that you can recognize that something is a mutant, uh, mutant driven design. And I realized that I, I felt the same, that I can actually be able to recognize when things are TDD'd, but now I think I will be able to recognize when things are mutated, if, the, if it's a word. So what, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, um, I experienced the same, and I call it the MDD, mutation testing driven design, or however you abbreviate it. Um, the basic point is that there is a rightly known weakness in TDD, which is basically you, you do a test first, but when you do the implementation cycle, there is a possibility you implement too much, too many semantics, and you forget to as, add a test for this semantic because you A, simply forget it, B, you are not experienced enough and you use a composition of primitives which does too much, but includes the test you just added, or C, um, there is a totally unexpected side effect of adding, of, of, of fulfilling the just added test, which adds lots of other semantics you should actually have tests for and mutation testing really plugs nicely here because it can actually tell you if there are unspecified semantics in your code and um, just as a little spoiler um, mutation testing the way mutant does it might not be the canonical way mutant is just built as a tool to assist my personal needs so i sometimes run into problems um, when people expect mutant to do things totally different um, so there's a there's a big problem right now in my opinion that it's totally aligned to my personal needs and i'm just beginning to get community input and i actually see the value in the community input so um talking to guys trying mutation testing helps myself a lot and this is all the this podcast is about to get this kind of interaction and knowledge exchange happening Great, great. And you know, to admit, uh, it was a bit of an accident that we started using Mutant. Uh, so we started this thing called Rails Event Store to, to allow Rails developers to use event sourcing and CQRS and such things in, in their Rails applications. But the developer who started the initial code, uh, uh, he chose uh, RSpec as the testing library. And I'm really not a big fan of, of RSpec. And when I, when I have the choice, I prefer to use Minitest. But then I was reminded of this thing that Mutant doesn't support Minitest and then Mutant supports RSpec. So, okay, so let's take advantage of the good things that we have because of RSpec and, and let's, let's, use, let's use Mutant. <laughs> okay, 
Um, and actually, um, Minitest, um, there is currently a guy who works at Red Hat and he has a team who likes Minitests also and he is a, pro a user of RSpec in his private time and he likes mutants, he likes mutants so much he recently PR'd, uh, Minitest integration, which in my opinion will make it this time to mutant mainline whenever I have time to do the next open source cycle on this PR. That's great. That's great. So yeah, and then we started using Mutant, and I realized uh, that we have some untested code, and I, I also realized that we have some parts of our um, of this gem called Rails Event Store that I consider to be core, and because if people use Rails Event Store, it will be like the platform that they will build on, like they're almost the persistence replacement. So I really want it to be totally reliable and never. Uh, never break things, but still allow refactorings if we need it and have a really nice test coverage. So now we are in the topic in test coverage. And obviously there are several tools in the Ruby community. Some are more popular, some are less popular. So maybe you could introduce us. What is the difference between Arcov, SimpleCov and Mutant, for example? Okay. So in my opinion, first, first statement, um, RCOV and SimpleCov um, have equal kind of guarantees. They're basically aligned tracing coverage measurement tools. Um, and this, yeah, okay. So conceptually, in my opinion, Mutant could be described as a semantic coverage testing tool. Um, and that obviously includes the line tracing thing. Um, yeah, so the, the classic counterexample where line line tracing or line based coverage doesn't doesn't possibly work is when when I have a method and this method has n side effects and these are executed in a sequence and I add a test for the last side effect I get full coverage while only specifying a f small fragments uh, or small fragment of the available semantics in this method. This is a classic counterexample and even branch coverage would not find this one because I just say okay I write file A then I write file B then I write file C and I only have to add a test for C and get full line coverage and actually full branch coverage because there are no there are no branches. The only known technique to me is mutation testing, which would force me to specify the interactions with uh, shared mutable or side effect for resource A and B. Okay, um, so that's the thing with those simpler tools like Arcov and SimpleCov compared to Mutant is that. They don't really give you that much confidence, I, I think. So it might, it might be a false confidence at some point. If you have a, even a high coverage in SimpleCov or Arcov, you may break things uh, by refactoring, even when you thought you were totally secure. Exactly. Even with Mutant, Mutant is not a silver bullet, but it, key, it basically pushes the amount of confidence to another magnitude. It will, won't solve all your problems, but it solves significant more problems and that's, that's what I'm interested in, in incremental improvements to my development activities. So now that we are at the topic of test coverage and people love to discuss this, the point of achieving some kind of test coverage, so we need to discuss it, we need to talk about it and my, my view is that test coverage does matter, however it doesn't really matter when you try to, I don't know, improve from 60% to 70%, it doesn't really bring that much value. But if you are closer to 100%, it's, it brings much more value. And yeah, I'm it, get, sure it gets agree. exponential more value. Yeah, so I think that the difference between 60 and 70 is less important than the difference between 99 and 100. Exactly. 
Absolutely. Totally. I totally agree. There is a turning point. So I typically, when I talk to people about mutation coverage, it's like, oh, so much work, so much work, and what's the benefit? Um, but I, I, I typically have to have to convince them to give them a little bit of more forward trust to say, okay, so instead to aim for 100% coverage for the whole project, let's let's take something tricky, a small unit, and get 100% coverage there. Then you can expect, and then just keep it at 100% coverage. And after after one development cycle or two development cycles, look back into the difference of pain this module after achieving 100% coverage and keeping it there. Um, you got from this module again. And um, after three to four cycles, I typically have, yeah, get the people to the point they really understand it. Yeah, and also obviously there's a difference. So if you start with a legacy code base that wasn't really well tested, uh, you have a, a different starting point. So you need to improve the test coverage at some to, to certain level. But when you start from a Greenfield project, so you, you are responsible for everything from scratch and you do follow TDD in a well, defined way, uh, then you should have 100% coverage no matter what you do, right? If you do the right TDD. Depends. So uh, there is a classic TDD where you say, I had a test first and I write code, but these cycles do not include uh, running a li even line tracing coverage tool. You can easily end up with 90% code coverage when doing classic TDD. When doing metric-assisted TDD, running a line, che a line coverage checker, you still you still might be able to um, achieve 100% coverage with classic TDD, but the actual semantic coverage can, depending on the domain, be be really low. Look back to the example I gave before with this uh, sequence of n side effectful computations where you only have to specify the last one to get full line coverage. So, so yes, with Greenfield projects, it's significantly easier. And in terms of overall long-term speed, doing mutation testing from the beginning is probably the best idea, but backfilling mutation testing to legacy projects is what I do have to do usually. And there, this is mostly being done to, to, yeah, we, we as a strategy, we, we basically say, okay, so I change a single class to fix something, to fix a bug or to fix, to add a feature. And I make sure that all units I touch from this moment on, at least improve in mutation coverage or basically say, okay, I try to backfill mutation coverage first, then add the feature and keep it there. So it's a, it's a, I, I, I call it the drive-by mutation coverage principle. Nice. Uh, so recently I also, it was at, almost at the same time when I started using mutant more frequently, I also learned about uh, some advanced way of doing TDD. And I, somehow I missed the whole message from Uncle Bob at some point that when he was talking about transformation priority premise. Are you familiar with this concept? Yes, I am. Okay, so this is a, so lucky you. <laughs> Good that you know it. You know it before. I, I didn't know it, so I, it actually filled my gap, uh, filled the gap in my understanding of TDD, and it also solved the problem that was frequent in my TDD process when I was you know, doing the first basic steps with TDD, hard coding the values and so on and so on. And at some point you, you add a new test and then, okay, now, now it's the thinking part. Now I need to do it right, not the stupid way. And I didn't know transformation priority premise and its rules, it's very simple rules that you can do it very slowly, one micro step at a time. And it really helps by avoiding this kind of gap. There is no uh, longer pause than, I don't know, one minute. Yeah, exactly. So um, I typically recommend to run mutation testing on the subject you are currently working on 
after any decent improvement you had in your TDD cycle. So you don't have to do it on every cycle. You do not have to do it, but you have, uh, you do not have to do it after two cycles. It's a, it should be your own judgment when you say, okay, I need help here. But before I submit my changes to PR, um, via PR, I typically make sure that everything I touch stays at 100% coverage or at least improved. But everything I add totally fresh should be one at 100% coverage. And this basically helps me to um, keep the, yeah, to do the transformation priority promise correctly. Okay. Um, what else? What else here? So also when we, when we do the, mm, whatever TDD mutation testing and all those things, at some point we need to decide what is the current unit you work on. Uh, what is your preferred level of granularity? What do you run mutation testing against when you, you when you are in the TDD cycle? Uh, yeah, this is a very tough question because it depends on the impact of the of the change. So I typically try to get the change separated into the following steps. So first, I fix code style, which always because my my code style even on a, when I'm on the same project within one month, my code style. My code style basically shifts a bit. I, I shift preferences from quoting preference, whatever. So the first, the first thing I do is to make sure that all code I have to touch is perfectly in line with my code style. Um, the second thing is I fix any known fix me's which somehow belong to the change I plan. So I have a really, really flat and even ground to base my change on. And then I start the, then I start the typical TDD cycle. Um, and try to do it the least possible improvement I can possibly PR. So when I'm working on a feature, I typically have to adjust interfaces first to plug my feature in. But I try to get this interface adjustment back into mainline before I start with a real feature branch. So um, this is obviously the optimum case, but uh, the typical... the so. There's a nice thing about do, about splitting even a large change or even a small change into even smaller changes is that the unit of mutation coverage is very, very small. And um, if you ever run mutation testing on a decently complex code base, uh, the cost and ex uh, also the execution cost scales exponentially with the amount of um, subjects you and all the amount of tests you are including into the mutation test. So splitting your 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 current job into many small ones really helps you to uh, speed up um yeah to speed up the development cycle mm -hmm. so i I've, at some point i wrote a blog post and at the end i will put a link to the, the show notes uh that units that classes are not, not always units and when i look at typical quote typical Redis application i often see the problem that people like test every single class in isolation and then they mock out everything possible, which I don't find really valuable at some point. So when I want to change it, I have to really change a lot of code. Exactly. So, yeah, so you agree here, right? That the classes are a bit I too agree. low level. So uh, classes are sometimes a very good guidance to define units, but uh, there are there are lots of corner cases or actually lots of counter cases uh, where you shouldn't never think about doing the class as a unit. Um, so. Mutant actually looks like it forces you to write um, tests for every single class and every single interface. Um, there should be probably a dedicated blog post on how to avoid this um, sort error that Mutant tries to enforce. This. Um, I typically, I typically have my unit structured in a way that there is a, some kind of a topper level class 
and um, I try to mutation cover all classes which live into this top level class namespace, which is, are considered private classes, implementation details, whatever, through the public interface of the unit. There are very rare cases where I actually have to say, okay, I write a dedicated test for this specific edge case because it's so uneasy to target through the public interface, but most likely I'm just uh, cementing a smell there, so I try to avoid this. Okay, interesting. So I didn't really get this uh, this feeling that Mutant forces me or, or you know, suggested me to, to use classes and to test them in isolation. Uh, actually, quite the opposite. We, we Interesting. In the rates, even store implementation, we, when we started, we started without mutant first. Uh, so when we started, we, we had a, this facade class called client. And you can do everything possible through the facade class. And below that, as you call it, there we have several private classes. Maybe it's 10, maybe it's 12, I don't remember. So uh, we can change, replace implementation and even name and everything from those of those private classes. And the mutant and the tests are still working fine and the functionality works fine. So we only test through the public interface. Okay, so, but there is a problem that um, um, unexperienced mutant users see a mutation and the mutation is reported on the private interface and they try to kill the mutation but miss the point that they touch this code through the public interface and write a test dedicated against this mutation, not thinking about I need to kill this through the public interface. So this is what I mentioned before. Um, I probably this you did not run into this scenario because um, Muted improved a lot in terms of intelligence or basically convention um, for test selection. Um, I think this statement I, I did before was more based on a little bit more historic versions of Mutant. The tool is at least two years old right now and ran through several iterations. So. Um, I'm really happy that you, as the most recent new mutant user I'm talking to, didn't run into this trap. Perfect. Yeah, obviously, we've had several discussions in our team, like how, how to use mutant. And I think we also did our mistakes here. Uh, but it, it really helped. You should talk about this, uh, this thought process or, or write it down so I can review it and improve the documentation based on what you resulted in. Yeah, I think it was more more about the techniques around it than about the mutant itself. But what techniques uh, around it? I'm just curious. Like what to consider to be the core module of our system, right? Ah, so basically, it forced you to be very explicit about architecture. Exactly, and that was a good thing. Okay, so it's not a mutant thing. It's basically it just causes architectural back pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we had to define. So at at first, I thought, okay. Everything is important in our system, right? Let's have let's aim for the one hundred percent of cover of mutant coverage everything everywhere. But then I realized that while it's a good goal, it doesn't need to be like very strict goal because what we did we set at some point with your help we set up um, the continuous integration on Travis CI and we let it run mutant after every push and the build passes only when we have mutant coverage at some point. And right now this is one hundred percent I think. So that's the default. So that was good, but then I realized that certain modules don't need to be 100% if there is any really proper reason to not to have 100%. So I, I can only suggest that, that you, uh, that you uh, on the long-term target, whenever you touch these currently not 100% covered modules, um, you should think about adding them to the 100% uh, covered set over the time. Um, that's only my recommendation because in my opinion, from my observations, and I try to get 100% mutation coverage on legacy Rails course basis I'm working on, um, that it 
at least while trying to get the coverage. You might not achieve it the first time, you might not achieve it the second time, whatever, um, but you always find something significant to fix there. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so let's talk about uh, testing and uh, with rails and so it's and mutation coverage. So I find it with having worked on this mutation coverage on rails infected environments and um, pure Ruby environments, I find it exponentially harder to deal with rails in mutation coverage because um, there is more, yeah, more mutable global resources which prevent, which which basically cause back pressure to the way to the way mutant executes things. So with running mutant against the test suite, the test suite has to fulfill some basic properties. The first property is that you need to be able to rerun the test suite multiple times and um, multiple times in the same process. So it shouldn't leak garbage in memory um, and it should pass multiple times in the same process. And it shouldn't share values cross processes because of the way mutant parallelizes things. So um, when using mutant on a traditional Rails code base that has database heavy tests, um, you run into particular dif uh, difficulties. And I'm curious if you experience, experience it the same with Rails Event Store. Kind of, yes. Uh, so Rails Event Store, the core of the system that is not Rails dependent and I want to keep it isolated from the Rails parts. Um, is it tested without loading rails? Mm, we test it with loaded active record, I think, at the moment. Yeah, that's that's good because I always um, encourage people, especially for mutation testing, it, it, it might sound like a good idea that you try to test it in isolation, but because rails infects everything um, via monkey patches, um, that testing some piece of code without rails loaded is, when it's supposed to be used with rails, is um, not giving accurate results, in my opinion. Okay, so even active record might not be enough because some places might use active support, for example, right? Yeah, when you load active record, you load active support oh, yeah. transitively. There is no chance to avoid this, sadly. Sure. Okay, so what we did at first is we, we followed the architecture that we usually do in race applications. So we isolated from, from active record by using the repository pattern. So the repository pattern, is the, is, this is the class responsible for retrieving data from active record, but then it uh, repackaged the data into some kind of our data structures and it returns them to us. So what it means in practice is that in the tests we used uh, in-memory repository. So that was an equivalent of the real active record rep repository. It has the same interface, it returns the same data, but it has a different implementation. It keeps the, it keeps the data in memory instead of like in the database table. So we you, are, you can reset this um, in-memory repository yeah. um, between tests. Yeah, that's what we did, yes. So okay. we reset, we reset the, the data in memory. However, so er, this is almost great and it was almost enough for us. However, we don't really test the active record repository. So we can assume that it's you know, once written, it's always great, right? <laughs> okay. When, when, when dealing with, uh, basically dealing with this anything active record infected, um, will be interesting for you because um, depending on what database backend you use, you will run into the problem that um, multiple concurrently executed mutations will write to the same database and that can possibly go wrong. Um, on a really big legacy inherited um, code base I'm working commercially on, we ended up in opening a serializable transaction per test 
and uh, preventing this transaction from being committed. And this works surprisingly well on PostgreSQL to isolate any side effects cross, cross concurrently executing mutant kill threats. So uh, I, prob great. I probably want to release this as a gem. I didn't have the time, but um, whoever runs, listen to this podcast and tries to run a and sees problems where mutants where so-called neutral errors get reported, uh, we probably need to get need to get to them. Um, should look uh, into this technique to isolate this problem. Did you ever saw a neutral error? No, I don't remember. Oh, that's cool. So uh, I uh, might not fit this podcast, but we should talk about them. Um, so mutant has three kinds of mutations. So there are the evil mutations, which should make one test at least one test fail. Then there are the neutral mutations and there are the no-op mutations. The no-op mutations are a way to test if your environment is is set up for mutation testing perfectly, especially in terms of um, test reuse. So what Mutant does when it um, executes mutations against your code base, it first runs the uh, injects the code again, so injects a non-mutated mutated version of your code, but it basically it doesn't change the code at all, injects it, and assumes your pest should pass now. Uh, this makes sure that there is nothing interfering with the way mutant, um, mutant injects the code. There is no callback being triggered that uh, for some reason alters the test environment because if, if the way mutant injects code, even when the code is unchecked, unchanged, already turns your tests red, all evil mutations later that should turn the test red have no significance anymore. So um, whenever you see a neutral or no-op error being reported by mutant, you either have leaked test data from one test into the next test, or leaked data cross concurrently executing mutant kill threats. That's the only thing I want to add to this podcast, because when you have the situation, uh, check, check the repository, we should have a section explaining what to do next soon. Okay, so it's like a, almost like a, for the test library, it's like a self-verification process right now, right? It's so a self-verification process built into Mutant to make sure that um, we are not reporting 100% coverage when the tests already fail when being executed by Mutant, when the code is being executed by Mutant unmodified because of the way Mutant does things. And this happened in the past. Okay, okay, cool. Especially that's, that's complex with Rails because Rails has a very indeterministic environment. There are lots of autoloads going on, lots of implicit behavior from hooked whatever stuff. So um, it turned out having this kind of test, especially for more complex applications. So Rails event store, I checked out the repository during this talk, um, is quite, which is a good thing. I do not blame that you wrote less code and it's not less that complex. But when you look into bigger stuff, um, um, which, which touched the DB, um, you will run into problems with mutant and you need to look into this isolation stuff. Another idea is to limit the concurrency, which obviously makes it makes it slower, but there is a J flag where you can specify to run with less kill threats. When you go to one kill threat, there's obviously, obviously no concurrency problem anymore. Cool. Yeah, and as you said, the Royce Event Store is really a small project and it's also small by purpose. We don't really want to have it very big. And it is, in its core, it does just basically two things. Uh, it stores the events, so it helps you with storing the events. It helps you with retrieving the events in different ways. And also it's responsible for publishing, so there is like kind of an observer pattern implemented. We are now working on uh, also allowing people to use it in an async way, 
So there will be some async support as well. But overall, it's a very simple library, and we want to keep it very, very small and very simple. Did you ever use Mutant for a client project yet? No, I think there, in one of our client projects, someone started using it in, in some isolated classes, uh, but I wasn't involved in that. That was after your talk at Wroclaw RB uh, one year ago. There was ah. some, a bit of buzz about this, yeah, and but we started oh, using it. Till, till there was decent Minitest support, uh, you guys, when you're using Minitest, Mutant is not of value right now for you. Yeah, but sometimes we inherit code bases that use RSpec and there's no point in rewriting them. Yeah, sure. That, uh, that absolutely, absolutely makes sense. So, um, do you, so with the Rates Event Store, um, how do you decide which topic, uh, which subjects or units uh, should be 100% mutation tested? Uh, right now, I think we just say that all, everything, that climb, the facade, is, it needs to be 100%. Ah, okay, interesting. Is there anything left to talk about right now? I'm, I'm, because I'm a first-time podcaster, I'm probably not that good prepared, so you need to uh, give me some kind of hint how to continue. Okay, uh, so one, one more question. So when I was working with Resident Store with Mutant, I got to the point that, okay, I don't have this active record part covered. So I was thinking, oh, well, that's, let, let me just uh, implement a act, fake active record part that I will... Uh, just replace, uh, so I will like replace active record in my, in my, in, during my test phase. And I started working on that. And after, I don't know, half an hour, I had my, um, the, the subset of active record that we were using, I've had replaced. So the tests were working fine. It was just a subset for, for this project, very small. But then I realized, wait, someone has to do it. And then I was Googling and searching and I was searching for in memory active record, fake active record. And it seems like there is no such thing in our community, which was very surprising to me. It's not surprising to me because Active Record basically has an infinite interface, and whoever wants to write an in-memory adapter um, will soon just realize, don't do it, it's too much work. In my opinion, Active Record is not the way to do database abstraction, and the fact that we don't have a decent in-memory implementation is just... Um, yeah, it's just just proves this point because nobody wants to replicate it. it it's, the interface is bloated. Um, it does too many things. It squashes so m much implicit semantics into into the so-called models. Um, I don't think it's doable in a decent way. I think writing fake active record implementations for a specific project makes sense, but the universal one will probably never happen. Yeah, yeah I, I agree that. Uh, then I realized this actually, <laughs> what you said, it's, it's impossible. <laughs> yes. uh, but then I realized also the second point you mentioned that, but it's possible to implement the subset that we are using. For, so if you have a huge application, then it's impossible because you're probably using almost everything from Active Record. Or you all your dependencies use it. So yeah, you, yeah, you pull gems, some dependency yeah. on whenever a third party library, which pulls another third party library, which also uses Active Record, changes interface usages, you have to adjust your in memory representation. Yeah, that's a good point. But uh, still, if you have some medium sized project, I don't know, 100 models maybe, then, then you can. Uh, probably imagine implementing it. Because if you have like a very long running project, which is a legacy, but it's making money and you will be responsible for it so, for probably so the we, next we, year. We, we thought about actually, we thought about doing this, but then it proved out to be more cost efficient to write this, um, this adapter 
Uh, this Active Record Adapter, which basically uses a PostgreSQL Adapter, but wraps all tests into a serializable transaction, we never commit. So instead of instead of redoing Active Record, um, we basically mitigated Active Record. In a way, it's not that performant. I totally agree, but uh, we can still use mutation testing on it. That's yeah, that's a good idea. After our last conversation, I actually sat down and, and tried to find okay, let me let me try this write my own adapter thing and whether I can write in memory adapter just some basic one maybe. So, so then I, think, I realized it's very difficult. <laughs> so I, I think I should probably I should prioritize publishing what we did so this is commercial client because it will be of value for others. Wow, that would be fantastic. But overall, because you said you're wrapping the Postgres adapter, right? So you didn't write your own from scratch. No, no. We basically we just make sure that all tests run isolated in the DB, also a sophisticated version of database cleaner, which is um, we basically dropped out database cleaner because it, it's not concurrency safe, and it's also an edge case which will probably only work pos uh, work correctly on PostgreSQL because a concurrency model does not suck. Um, so the thing is that under mutation testing. We, we still hit the DB. We still get the uh, get the speed penalty. But um, for this specific client, being able to mutation test active record models because they won't go away because of a big third party Rails engine, we need to use, and there's no way we will re-implement this. Um, we still wanted to use mutation testing on this active record infected units. So um, instead of writing the in-memory adapter, which is impossible, we decided to fix the way active record tests are isolated from each other, we are wrapping in serializable transactions we never commit and um, uh, you need to, uh, it's out of the scope of this podcast, but a serializable transaction has several concurrency guarantees, um, which will blow up in case you try to commit it, but when you never commit it, you basically get a full or perfect enough fork of the database. And when you create this fork on the end and the empty database, all tests are perfectly isolated from each other, at least on PostgreSQL. Well, I'm looking forward to trying it once you publish it. Sure, I will. I, uh, after this, I, I think it's um, it, it's the I, I need to beef up the mutant documentation on this NOAP stuff and on especially on this active record stuff. And um, part of this should be at least a gist from the spec uh, from the from this uh, R spec edition we did, which executes the required PostgreSQL statements prior and after the test to um, totally fork the DB state. I think I'll, I can do this next week or so. Okay, great. So I think it's, it's time to slowly wrap up. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add to the conversation about? No, because I'm a first-time podcaster. I'm totally overwhelmed by the fact that I'm, I'm getting recorded. So uh, I'm, my brain is empty. <laughs> you did so very well. You, I, I can probably I can, uh, I can answer to any question, but right now I'm like, oh, uh, I cannot find anything I want to talk about. But please ask anything. I'm very happy to reply. <laughs> I think we've covered all the topics that I wanted to mention. So, perfect, uh, Marcus, it was really great to talk to you. I'm really inspired by your work and also for all the people who listen to us. Uh, I look at the Mutant code base and you can, if you are um, just starting with Ruby or you're already doing Ruby for several years, but you want to see a good example of a Ruby code base, then Mutant is the way, the place to go and look. It's, very, it's a very advanced project overall, but you can see at the certain classes, the code conventions, really, really good. Simple code, very readable. Thank you, thank you. But uh, one one thing, Mutant is not fully self-covered yet, and I'm aiming for self-coverage. But you know, um, self-covering a mutation testing engine requires some very funny hacks. But this is out of the scope of this podcast. 
But I'm, I'm okay. heading towards this. So mutant 1.0 will never happen unless mutant is 100% mutation covered. <laughs> that would be a nice point. Yeah, so that's, what, that's exactly 1.0. I can imagine being released. Exactly. So, yeah, so thank you very much and see you. Yeah, see you later. Bye. Bye.